Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. Ebony Magazine, The Black Agenda Report, The Washington Post, The Amsterdam News Newspaper, Forbes Magazine, and the Magazine of the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. And the first reading for today is from businessinsider.com. The title is, McDonald's Franchise Owners Push Back Against the Cardi B and Offset Celebrity Meal, Claiming the Rappers Go Against Company Values. It was written by Aidan Pollard and published March 1, 2023. McDonald's latest buzzy celebrity promotion featured a meal curated by Cardi B and Offset, but some franchise owners already want to sever ties with the rap artists. The meal, which was described as the couple's date night dinner and released on Valentine's Day, has prompted some franchise owners to push back against the fast food giant for its association with Cardi B and Offset, the Wall Street Journal reported. According to the journal, the dissenting owners said the lyrics and lifestyles of the celebrity couple don't match up with the McDonald's brand, and some have gone as far as to refuse to promote the meal at their stores. The Cardi B and Offset meal is the latest in McDonald's recent slate of celebrity meals dubbed Famous Orders. In recent years, the promotions have involved celebrities like BTS, Travis Scott, and Mariah Carey selecting items from the McDonald's menu and selling them as a branded meal with themed packaging. The promotions have been among the chain's most successful marketing pushes in recent years, the journal reported. In a statement, McDonald's U.S. Chief Marketing Officer, Tariq Hassan, told Insider the meals aim to tie the fast food chain to popular culture. Across our marketing, we're focused on putting McDonald's at the center of culture, he said. Artist collaborations have helped reignite fans' love for our food and fuel significant business momentum, both for the company and our restaurant owner-operators. In its promotional material for the meal, McDonald's has focused on the celebrity couple and pushed its restaurants as a date-night destination. Let me tell you, McDonald's is date-night done right, Offset said in a press release when the meal was announced. It doesn't have to be all bougie. Get your date, grab some food, and have fun. That's it. But some franchise owners say they fear association with Offset and Cardi B will diminish McDonald's family-friendly brand, the journal reported. The journal cannot confirm the exact number of franchises opposed to the promotion, but noted that some of the complaints it viewed were from franchises in the southeastern and mid-Atlantic United States. McDonald's told Insider that its public perception remains a priority for the company. Cardi and Offset are an iconic couple who have their own date-night tradition at McDonald's that goes back years, Hassan told Insider. We're proud to share a little piece of that with customers across the United States with our latest campaign, which is about love and celebrating the special moments we all share over McDonald's. There's a photograph that goes along with this story. It shows Cardi B and Offset feeding each other a French fry. She's wearing a white gown and a diamond-encrusted choker. He has on a dark gray suit with a black shirt. In Cardi B's hand, which is feeding a french fry to Offset, has white fake fingernails that are as long as the McDonald's french fry. 
That was the article. McDonald's franchise owners push back against the Cardi B and Offset celebrity meal, claiming the rappers go against company values. It was written by Aiden Pollard, published March 1, 2023, at 11.45 a.m., and appeared at the businessinsider.com website. The next reading is about the most recent recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor. It's from armytimes.com. The title is A Man, a Medal, and What It Takes to Lead by Todd South, published on March 3, 2023. A young Paris Davis met a handful of soldiers while attending college in the Deep South in the late 1950s. Davis is black. The soldiers were white. Those soldiers had some words for him. A couple of NCOs thought I might be a fair soldier, Davis told Army Times. They said I ought to go into the military. The first thing they told me, do what the sergeants tell you. They're not going to lead you wrong. And I did, and they did, and that's why we're in this room. Davis shared that memory as he spent the day being interviewed by multiple media outlets Thursday, March 2nd, a short time before he would stand in his old uniform, festooned with ribbons, badges, and medals, but with space for one more, the Medal of Honor. On Friday, March 3rd, President Joe Biden looked at retired Army Colonel Paris Davis and then to the crowd and said that this day may be the most consequential of any day during his presidency. Paris, you are everything this medal means, Biden said, and you are everything our generation aspired to be, and you're everything our nation is at our best. The nation may have waited nearly six decades to right the wrong of not bestowing this medal on Davis, but the octogenarian released those prospects before weapons were cooled from the harrowing battle he'd survived. The next section of this reading is titled The Fight, and it describes the battle in which Colonel Davis earned his Congressional Medal of Honor. Specialist Ronald Dees didn't even know what Green Berets were in 1963 when he attended advanced infantry training while awaiting an officer candidate position. He joined the Army to fly helicopters. But he and five other soldiers in the same status listened to a gruff first sergeant as he clicked through slides showing the work that the newly formed special forces were doing. And when he showed a slide of a Green Beret in a jungle eating a snake, I said, sign me up, he said. Deese didn't look back, ripping through the training and landing in Okinawa, Japan, for his first unit assignment. The first sergeant told him and the other newbies they were forming a team that was headed to Vietnam. And naturally, I said yes, Deese said. That's when he met Davis. I like to tell people that he did not lead as an authoritarian, Deese said. The men on the team, I think, respected him from the very start. On June 17, 1965, in the vicinity of Bong Son, Republic of Vietnam, Davis, three other Green Berets, and an inexperienced company of the 883rd South Vietnamese Regional Force led an attack on an enemy base. That night, Davis captured two enemy personnel himself and questioned them. He learned that a vastly larger enemy force patrolled the area. The captain put his men into position and commenced the attack. Enemy fire wounded Davis on the initial attack, but he fought through and killed several enemy soldiers in hand-to-hand -hand combat according to the award citation. 
Despite a counterattack that separated Davis from his troops, he led the four soldiers he had with him as they braved intense fire, destroyed gun emplacements, and captured more enemy soldiers. Deese's job during the mission required him to fly in a small spotter plane and monitor the unfolding operation and coordinate communications, fire, and air support. Within a half hour in the air, enemy fire shot down Deese's plane. He made it to headquarters and started receiving wounded from the fight and hearing spurts of radio traffic on what his captain and teammates faced out there. I knew my teammates were all wounded and I knew that Captain Davis was trying desperately to get his people back to an evacuation site where they could get them off the battlefield. After the chaos of the battle separated Davis from his men, he regrouped his forces, broke contact with the enemy, and called for air and artillery fire as the enemy again counterattacked. A close-range shot from another enemy soldier wounded Davis for the second time. He tackled the man, defeating him in hand-to-hand -hand combat before he saw two American soldiers wounded and pinned under ongoing small-arms fire. Asked all these decades later what stood out most from those two trying days, Davis shared with Army Times a snippet of those memories. He crawled out 150 yards to one of his soldiers who'd been shot in the temple but still lived. Seeing him going in and out of reality, at one point he grabs my hand and says, Am I gonna die? And I say, holding his hand, Not before me, Davis said. The captain timed moving the wounded off the battlefield with smoke, close air, and artillery fire. Not everyone made it, but Davis knew the bodies had to come home. Without disclosing too many details, he said he had some choice words with an individual on one of the evacuation aircraft about leaving without the dead. I refused to leave and he thought I should, Davis said. He thinks that had some initial impact on his Medal of Honor recommendation package being lost more than once. Others believe race was a factor. Davis served as a pioneering black officer, the first to lead special forces troops in combat. At that time, I thought something happened and I might not get the medal, Davis said, and I just completely forgot about it. I really did. Deese remembers a sergeant, a kind of mentor of his, arriving back at the headquarters, having spent the past two days in battle with Davis. This sergeant had seen much combat, more than any other in the group. I was helping get leeches off his body from him lying in a rice paddy all day, and he mentioned that he thought that Captain Davis deserved the Medal of Honor for what he observed that day, Dee said. I never forgot that. That was pretty profound. Davis did later receive the Silver Star Medal. But as the decades dragged on, that didn't sit right with Deese and others, who, starting in 2016, began a campaign of their own to have the medal recommendation reconsidered by the Army. It matters to me because I know what it takes to be nominated for the Medal of Honor, Deese said. To not have that recognized is an injustice. Major General Patrick Roberson, Deputy Commander of the U.S. Army Special Operations Command, knows a few things about valor after his own decades-long career in Special Forces. Roberson told Army Times that the time frame in which Davis and his team served as one of the golden ages of Special Operations as the newly formed Green Beret tested their mettle and fought in an entirely different kind of war than their predecessors. Some of what was established by those Vietnam-era teams continued to be common practice a generation later in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Small teams working with indigenous forces in the midst of enemy territory can sound pretty familiar to a Green Beret of any age.
A number of the Vietnam War veterans in the special operations community come to speak at training events and lectures still, he said. When we look back at what we were doing, they did it masterfully, he said. Robeson said Davis's actions and his career provide inspiration for him and the entire Army. Command Sergeant Major Michael Weimer, the top enlisted individual for United States Special Operations Command and the incoming Sergeant Major of the Army, said that since childhood he has been a student of the Green Beret in Vietnam. I was not surprised, Weimer said. When the story came out, I was not really surprised because of the amount of heroism that took place on a regular basis back then with little fanfare. The senior non-commissioned officer said that Davis's service in Vietnam and his career are living the model of the Special Forces, de oppresso liber, or to free the oppressed. I am a Green Beret today because of Green Berets like Colonel Davis. Davis stayed in the Army after Vietnam, making colonel in 1981 and assuming command of the 10th Special Forces Group at Fort Devens, Massachusetts. Which was his favorite command, he told Army Times. I was so happy, he said. It was like being in a place and loving every bit of it. Davis retired as a colonel in 1985. The proud father of three children published the Metro Herald newspaper for 30 years in Alexandria, Virginia, following his Army career. If his medal has a purpose, he said he hopes it serves to honor what all of the men of his team did during their time in Vietnam. Many, he said, didn't receive the valor awards that they deserved. Hero, bravery, courage. These are words that are hard to accept for anyone. Davis is no different. Was I scared? Davis said, yeah. Am I a real brave man, he said? No. Every person on that team could have been me. There are two photographs that come with this article. The first is a black and white picture from 1965 that shows then Captain Paris Davis in front of three uniformed South Vietnamese soldiers standing at ease. Davis is wearing the old Santine field uniform with rolled up sleeves, a special forces beret, and dark sunglasses. The next photograph is from the award ceremony on Friday, March 3, 2023. Now retired Colonel Paris is standing at attention in full-dress uniform while President Biden drapes the Congressional Medal of Honor around his neck. That was the article, A Man, a Medal, and What It Takes to Lead, written by Todd South, published at the ArmyTimes.com website, on March 3rd, 2023, at 4.30 p.m. The next story in today's program is from the Washington Post newspaper and was published March 2nd, 2023. The title is, Tulsa Race Massacre Survivors Given Ghana Citizenship. It was written by Deneen L. Brown. In a ceremony on Tuesday, February 28th, at the Embassy of Ghana in Washington, Two of the last known survivors of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre received citizenship of the Republic of Ghana, where they had previously been crowned Ghanaian royalty. The two survivors, Viola Fletcher, 108, and her brother Hughes Van Ellis, 102, sat in golden print robes in the front row at the ceremony, where they were serenaded with drumming, dancing, and a ballad. Welcome home. You've been kept down for much too long. Don't forget, you are welcome home. 
Fletcher and Ellis were children when a white mob descended on the all-black neighborhood of Greenwood in Tulsa on May 31, 1921, destroying one of the country's most prosperous black communities. When the massacre ended, as many as 300 black people had been killed and a 35-square-block area of Greenwood was destroyed. Fletcher and Ellis visited Ghana in 2021 on the centennial of the massacre, one of the worst incidents of racist terror violence committed against black Americans. During the visit, they were given royal Ghanaian names. Ellis was crowned a chief and called Biolante, capital B-I-O, capital L-A-N-T-E-Y. And Fletcher was crowned a queen mother and named Naa Lamale, capital N-A-A, capital L-A-M-E-L-E-Y meaning a strong person who stands the test of time. On their trip, they also met Ghana's president, Nana Akufo Addo, capital N-A-N-A, capital A-K-U-F-O dash capital A-D-D-O, who approved the process for granting them Ghanaian citizenship and gave Fletcher a plot of land in the capital of Accra. Akufo Addo had issued an invitation to members of the African diaspora to visit Ghana to mark the year of the return, commemorating 400 years since the first Africans arrived in the colony of Virginia. After that meeting, Akufo Addo told reporters that he recognized Fletcher and Ellis' resilience in surviving the Tulsa massacre. They lived to tell the story, he said. At the embassy on Tuesday, February 28th, the survivors completed the citizenship process by swearing an oath of allegiance and signing certification documents. There's one photograph that goes along with the story. It shows the two individuals, Viola Fletcher and her brother, Hughes Van Ellis, sitting in wheelchairs in front of a group of people who are smiling and taking pictures of the ceremony. That was the article, Tulsa Race Massacre Survivors Given Ghana Citizenship, written by Denine L. Brown, published March 2, 2023, and it appeared in the Washington Post newspaper. The next reading on today's program is from Ebony.com. The title is Expert Tips for Spotting and Managing Vitamin D Deficiency in Melanated Skin. It was written by Team Ebony and published February 6, 2023. Vitamin D deficiency affects an estimated 76% of African Americans and around 44% of Hispanics. It is a common issue in darker skin tones, mostly due to melanin's natural way of protecting itself from UV radiation. And sadly, the percentage will only rise. Dr. Leslie Ray Matthews, a diplomat of the American Board of Surgery, has focused and devoted much of his long-standing career to the study of vitamin D deficiency in surgical intensive care patients. He has also investigated the positive effect of vitamin D therapy in critically ill patients. Ebony spoke with Dr. Matthews to learn more about the issues as it affects black and brown people as well as get tips on how to spot and treat it on our own. Ebony, why is vitamin D deficiency so prevalent in black and brown people? Dr. Matthews. Vitamin D3 deficiency is so prevalent in black and brown people because of the extra melanin in our skin. The extra melanin protects us from the sun's harmful effects such as skin cancer and sunburn. Due to darker skin blocking and the harmful effects of UV radiation, 
It can also prevent the body from naturally producing vitamin D. Furthermore, using sunscreen before absorbing at least 20 minutes of sun can also prevent you from consuming the proper amount of vitamin D. Question. What are the five key signs for spotting it? Dr. Matthews. Signs and symptoms of vitamin D3 deficiency are brain fog, lack of focus and concentration, fatigue, frequent upper respiratory tract infections, muscle and joint pain, insomnia, hair loss, and frequently fractured bones. You should be tested for vitamin intake annually with your physical. Question. What suggestions do you have to increase our vitamin D intake? Dr. Matthews. You can attain proper amounts of vitamin D through your diet, supplements, or through your skin. It's recommended to get 20 minutes of sun exposure during the summer months. Also, taking supplements such as pills, capsules, liquid, or soft gels can increase vitamin D3 intake. Also, there are additional vitamin D facts to know. Vitamin D helps your body absorb calcium. Half of the world's population is vitamin D3 deficient, which is a total of 4 billion people. Vitamin D is both a nutrient and hormone used to boost our immune system. This hormone contributes to reducing the risk of all types of viruses, diseases, bacteria, and fungal infections sweeping around the world. Vitamin D can help manage PTSD, depression, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder by lessening the symptoms connected to these psychiatric disorders. Vitamin D3 deficiency during pregnancy is associated with increased maternal fetal mortality rate, preeclampsia, P-R-E-C-L-A-M-P-S-I-A, and upper respiratory tract infections. That was a reading of the article, Expert Tips for Spotting and Managing Vitamin D Deficiency in Melanated Skin. It was written by Team Ebony, published February 6, 2023, and was found at the ebony.com website. The next story on today's program was written by the Associated Press, but I found it at the New York Amsterdam News newspaper and its amsterdamnews.com website. The title is Malcolm X's Daughter to Sue CIA and FBI for Wrongful Death. It was published February 21st, 2023. The family of slain civil rights leader Malcolm X marked on Tuesday the anniversary of his 1965 assassination by announcing plans to sue agencies including the CIA, FBI, the New York Police Department, and others for $100 million, accusing them of playing a role in his death. Two of his daughters, Ilyasa Shabazz and Kubila Shabazz, capital I-L-Y-A-S-A-H, and capital Q-U-B-I-L-A-H, were joined by attorney Ben Crump at a news conference at the site of the former Audubon Ballroom in Upper Manhattan, where Malcolm X was fatally shot as a crowd gathered to hear him speak on February 21, 1965. For decades, questions have circulated over who was responsible for his death. Three men were convicted, but two were exonerated in 2021 after renewed investigation into the cases against them showed the evidence used to gain convictions was shaky and that authorities had held back some information. Ilyasa Shabazz, the co-administrator of her father's estate, filed notices of claim, 
which is the first step in the process, saying that the agencies conspired with each other and with other individuals and acted and failed to act in such a way as to bring about the wrongful death of Malcolm X. For years, our family has fought for the truth to come to light, she said at the news conference. We want justice served for our father. Emails seeking comment were sent to the CIA, FBI, Department of Justice, and New York City's legal department. The Department of Justice and New York Police Department declined to comment. Crump noted the anniversary date and said that ever since then, there has been speculation as to who was involved in the assassination of Malcolm X. He cited the 2021 exonerations and said that government agencies, including the Manhattan District Attorney, the New York Police Department, and the FBI had factual evidence, exculpatory evidence that they fraudulently concealed from the men who were wrongfully convicted for the assassination of Malcolm X. Asked if he believes government agencies conspired to assassinate Malcolm, Crump said, that is what we are alleging, yes, they infiltrated many civil rights organizations. That was the reading of the article, Malcolm X's Daughter to Sue CIA and FBI for Wrongful Death. It was written by the Associated Press and published February 21, 2023 at the website of the Amsterdam News, which is amsterdamnews.com. The next story on today's African American Hour is from Forbes magazine and its Forbes.com website. The title is Four Key Black History Facts That Everyone Should Know by Dana Brownlee. It was published February 27, 2023. Black History Month programming shouldn't feel like jeopardy preparation. Yes, it's helpful to learn facts, dates, and figures, but it's important to be purposeful in selecting which content to amplify and why. The goal should be explaining important narratives and challenging problematic paradigms, not memorizing trivia. While it's impossible to sufficiently review black history within 28 days, these four myth-busting facts provide examples of the type of fundamental historical information everyone should fully understand to enable more effective workplace conversations about race and racism. 1. Black history did not start with slavery. Unfortunately, the long sword history of the African-American experience leads many to misconstrue the transatlantic slave trade as the beginning of black history. It's not. In his TEDx talk, African historian Emmanuel Kulu Jr., capital K-U-L-U, explains, My father never allowed me to believe that the history of the black man began with the transatlantic slave trade. He taught me about the ancient kings, queens, master builders, and scholars. In fact, it's ancient Africans who are credited with first estimating pi for mathematical calculations, creating the 365-day calendar, developing rudimentary clocks, and the first method of counting. This American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology article highlights Africa's role in medical advances. Medical procedures performed in ancient Africa before they were performed in Europe include vaccination, autopsy, limb traction and broken bone setting, bullet removal, brain surgery, skin grafting, filling of dental cavities, installation of false teeth, and what is now known as cesarean section, anesthesia and tissue cauterization, the article explains. In addition, 
African cultures performed surgeries under antiseptic conditions universally when this concept was only emerging in Europe. When we only view black history through the lens of exploitation and oppression, we minimize its import. Indeed, Kulu challenges us to expand our worldview to appropriately acknowledge Africa's relevance. Mama Africa is the common ancestor of all humanity. Therefore, black history is essential to everyone's history, he explains. Two, changing laws did not magically erase discrimination. Many people assume that simply because laws changed at different points in history, discrimination and oppression immediately ceased. That assumption is not just misguided and dangerous, it's completely ahistorical. History is replete with examples of laws either unenforced, completely disregarded, subverted, or even overruled by the Supreme Court, rendering them fairly meaningless in the day-to-day lives of most black people. Throughout history, white resistance was forceful and relentless, and as a result, new legislation rarely, if ever, translated into swift and enduring justice. Let's examine a few tangible examples. Arguably, many of the gains of the 1960s civil rights movement merely realized rights that had already been granted on paper nearly a century earlier through the 14th and 15th Amendments. Ratified in 1868, the 14th Amendment granted citizenship to formerly enslaved people and also provided all citizens with equal protection under the laws, extending the provisions of the Bill of Rights to the states. Ratified in 1870, the 15th Amendment granted black men the right to vote, but localities quickly adopted tactics, poll taxes, grandfather clauses, literacy tests, and violence and intimidation designed to deny them that legal protection. While the Supreme Court ruled school desegregation unconstitutional in the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education ruling, stubborn white resistance effectively maintained segregation in many parts of the country until the protest of the mid-1960s. The Equal Justice Initiative reports in the five Deep South states, every single one of the 1.4 million black school children attended segregated schools until the fall of 1960. By the start of the 1964-65 school year, less than 3% of the South's African-American children attended school with white students, and in Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Mississippi, and South Carolina, that number remained substantially below 1%. The wording of the 13th Amendment, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction, created a loophole that permitted a new iteration of slavery, at times even more brutal. After the passage of the 13th Amendment, some states promptly passed black codes, which criminalized benign behaviors or trivial infractions thereby creating a legal mechanism for the continued enslavement of black people. In his best-selling book, Slavery by Another Name, The Re-Enslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Douglas Blackman details the horrific system of convicted leasing that served to enrich individuals, local municipalities, and state governments, as well as corporations, for nearly 80 years. 3. Resistance and protest have been absolute prerequisites for racial progress. While it's certainly more romantic to believe that civil rights advances happen naturally simply with the passage of time because society grew more moral, that worldview is simply not supported in fact. These are the raw facts. Chattel slavery lasted 246 years. 
Jim Crow laws and rampant legalized government-sanctioned racial subordination persisted for nearly a century after that. At no point did the white male power structure simply decide to dismantle systems of inequality because it was the right thing to do. Gains were only won through centuries of relentless resistance and protest, from slave rebellions to the Underground Railroad to sit-ins, freedom rides, March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, Montgomery Bus Boycott, the March from Selma to Montgomery marches, and more. Perhaps Dr. King best addressed the mythology of racial progress through moral appeal in his famous letter from Birmingham jail. He wrote, We must come to see that human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and persistent work of men willing to be co-workers with God, and without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. The letter continues, We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. 4. When slavery ended, many slave owners were compensated. However, slaves and their descendants were not. On April 16, 1862, President Lincoln signed the District of Columbia Compensated Emancipation Act, a law that prohibited slavery within the district and also compensated previous slaveholders an average of $300 approximately $8,000 in 2021 dollars. Across the country, slaves themselves, their families and descendants receive nothing. The simple truth is that at every progress juncture, when government finally passed legislation to ostensibly rectify systems of oppression, mistreatment and outright theft, they conspicuously omitted any tangible remuneration. As a result, black Americans were forced to begin the wealth building process with a centuries-long deficit. It should surprise no one that median black household wealth today is only about 10% that of median white households. Speaking to a civil rights group at a 2021 event commemorating Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen spoke candidly about the legacy of the slain civil rights leader. He knew that economic injustice was bound up in the larger injustice he fought against. From Reconstruction to Jim Crow to the present day, Our economy has never worked fairly for black Americans or really for any American of color, Yellen said. The National Public Radio article, Why the Racial Wealth Gap is So Hard to Close, details economists' findings on racial wealth disparities from 1860 to 2020. The article concludes, If America really wanted a policy to completely close the racial wealth gap sooner rather than later, the only thing that would do it anytime soon is some sort of big wealth redistribution. That was the article, Four Key Black History Facts That Everyone Should Know, written by Dana Brownlee. It was found at the Forbes.com website and published February 27, 2023. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the African American Hour. I'm your host, Byron Buckner. The previous reading mentioned information that was found in an article that was published in the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology magazine. I'm going to go to that article now. The title is Great Achievements in Science and Technology in Ancient Africa by Sidella Blatch, capital S-Y-D-E-L-L-A. It was published February 1, 2013 in the magazine of the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology and was found at its website, asbmb.org. 
Despite suffering through the horrific system of slavery, sharecropping, and the Jim Crow era, early African Americans made countless contributions to science and technology. This lineage and culture of achievement, though, emerged at least 40,000 years ago in Africa. Unfortunately, few of us are aware of these accomplishments as the history of Africa beyond ancient Egypt is seldom publicized. Sadly, the vast majority of discussions on the origins of science include only the Greeks, Romans, and other whites. But in fact, most of their discoveries came thousands of years after African developments. While the remarkable black civilization in Egypt remains alluring, there was sophistication and impressive inventions throughout ancient sub-Saharan Africa as well. There are just a handful of scholars in this area. The most prolific is the late Ivan Van Sertima capital S-E-R-T-I-M-A, an associate professor at Rutgers University. He once poignantly wrote that the nerve of the world has been deadened for centuries to the vibrations of African genius. Here, I attempt to send an electrical impulse to this long deadened nerve. I can only fly by this vast plane of achievements. Despite this, it still should be evident that the ancient people of Africa, like so many other ancients of the world, definitely had their genius. Math. Surely only a few of us know that many modern high school level concepts in mathematics first developed in Africa, as was the first method of counting. More than 35,000 years ago, Egyptian scripted textbooks about math that included division and multiplication of fractions in geometric formulas to calculate the area and volume of shapes. Distances and angles were calculated, Algebraic equations were solved and mathematically-based predictions were made on the size of floods of the Nile. The ancient Egyptians considered a circle to have 360 degrees and estimated pi at 3.16. 8,000 years ago, people in present-day Zaire developed their own numeration system, as did Yoruba people in what is now Nigeria. The Yoruba system was based on units of 20 instead of 10, and required an impressive amount of subtraction to identify different numbers. Scholars have lauded this system as it required much abstract reasoning. Astronomy. Several ancient African cultures birthed discoveries in astronomy. Many of these were foundations on which we still rely, and some were so advanced that their mode of discovery still cannot be understood. Egyptians charted the movement of the sun in constellations and the cycles of the moon. They divided the year into 12 parts and developed a year-long calendar system containing 365 and one-fourth days. Clocks were made with moving water and sundial-like clocks were used. A structure known as the African Stonehenge in present-day Kenya, constructed around 300 BC, was a remarkably accurate calendar. The Dagon people of Mali amassed a wealth of detailed astronomical observations. Many of their discoveries were so advanced that some modern scholars credited their discoveries instead to space aliens or unknown European travelers, even though the Dagon culture is steeped in ceremonial tradition centered on several space events. The Dagon knew of Saturn's rings, Jupiter's moons, the spiral structure of the Milky Way, and the orbit of the Sirius star system. Hundreds of years ago, they plotted orbits in this system accurately through the year 1990. They knew this system contained a primary star and a secondary star, now called Sirius B, of immense density and not visible to the naked eye. Metallurgy and Tools Many advances in metallurgy and toolmaking were made across the entirety of ancient Africa. These include steam engines, metal chisels and saws, 
copper and iron tools and weapons, nails, glue, carbon steel, and bronze weapons and art. Advances in Tanzania, Rwanda, and Uganda between 1,500 and 2,000 years ago surpassed those of Europeans then and were astonishing to Europeans when they learned of them. Ancient Tanzanian furnaces could reach 1,800 degrees centigrade, 200 to 400 degrees centigrade warmer than those of the Romans. Architecture and Engineering Various past African societies created sophisticated built environments. Of course, there are the engineering feats of the Egyptians, the bafflingly raised obelisks, and the more than 80 pyramids. The largest of the pyramids covers 13 acres and is made of 2.25 million blocks of stone. Later, in the 12th century and much farther south, there were hundreds of great cities in Zimbabwe and Mozambique. There, massive stone complexes were the hubs of cities. One included a 250-meter-long, 15,000-ton curved granite wall. The cities featured huge castle-like compounds with numerous rooms for specific tasks, such as ironsmithing. In the 13th century, the Empire of Mali boasted impressive cities, including Timbuktu, with grand palaces, mosques, and universities. Medicine. Many treatments we use today were employed by several ancient peoples throughout Africa. Before the European invasion of Africa, medicine in what is now Egypt, Nigeria, and South Africa, to name just a few places, was more advanced than medicine in Europe. Some of these practices were the use of plants with salicylic acid for pain, as in aspirin, kaolin for diarrhea, as in kaopectate, and extracts that were confirmed in the 20th century to kill gram-positive bacteria. Other plants used had anti-cancer properties, caused abortion, and treated malaria. And these have been shown to be as effective as many modern-day Western treatments. Medical procedures performed in ancient Africa before they were performed in Europe include vaccination, autopsy, limb traction and broken bone setting, bullet removal, brain surgery, skin grafting, filling of dental cavities, installation of false teeth, what is now known as cesarean section, anesthesia, and tissue cauterization. In addition, African cultures performed surgeries under antiseptic conditions universally when this concept was only emerging in Europe. Navigation Most of us learned that Europeans were the first to sail to the Americas. However, several lines of evidence suggest that ancient Africans sailed to South America and Asia hundreds of years before Europeans. Thousands of miles of waterways across Africa were trade routes. Many ancient societies in Africa built a variety of boats, including small reed-based vessels, sailboats, and grander structures with many cabins and even cooking facilities. The Mali and Songhai built boats 100 feet long and 13 feet wide that could carry up to 80 tons. Currents in the Atlantic Ocean flow from this part of West Africa to South America. Genetic evidence from plants and descriptions and art from societies inhabiting South America at the time suggests small numbers of West Africans sailed to the east coast of South America and remained there. Contemporary scientists have reconstructed these ancient vessels and their fishing gear and have completed the transatlantic voyage successfully. Around the same time as they were sailing to South America, the 13th century, these ancient people also sailed to China and back carrying elephants as cargo. People of African descent come from ancient, rich, and elaborate cultures that created a wealth of technologies in many areas. Hopefully, over time, there will be more studies in this area and more people will know of these great achievements. That was a reading of the article, Great Achievements in Science and Technology in Ancient Africa, 
by Sidella Blatch. It was published February 1st, 2013 in the magazine of the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at its asbmb.org website. The next reading in today's program is from the Black Agenda Report and its blackagendareport.com website. It's an op-ed piece titled, Star-Spangled Blackness, How the 1619 Project Celebrates an Anti-African Black American Identity. It was written by Dr. Charity Clay and published February 15, 2023. There's always been something about black people wrapped in the American flag that has made me uneasy. For me, it's a symbolism indicative of the intimate bonds we have with our oppressor and the way it results in a longing to be accepted by those whose survival is predicated on our destruction. So when I heard of the 1619 Project, I had immediate reservations. I'm well aware that 1619 was the year that the first recorded enslaved Africans came to the shores of the British colony, which would later become the state of Virginia. I support the need for African descendants in the United States to embrace the difficult challenge of learning about the true history of our constant resistance to and survival of chattel slavery. I believe that this history can unlock keys that will allow us to address our community's most important struggles. Before reading the initial collection of essays, I thought the project would contribute to that work, draw connections from those first enslaved Africans to the present-day descendants still living as captives here in the United States. I found the opposite to be true. The 1619 Project contained essays that read to me like pleas of neglected, abandoned, and abused children longing for the affection of their abusive founding fathers while completely ignoring that he ripped them from the care of their mother. Africa. These essays had the tone of bastard children who refused to believe that their father didn't love them and as a result set out to show him how much of his children they were. So while each essay contained clear indictment of the horrors that Africans and their descendants suffered in the name of the nation that would become the United States and its settler colonial project, those indictments were forgiven and that our struggle for survival under this oppression qualified us to be truly American. As someone who identifies herself as a descendant of African slaves living behind enemy lines in the United States, I was disgusted that black patriotism to the United States was being used as currency to buy inclusion as Americans, not freedom from oppression, but inclusion as equal to whites. Many who identify as black Americans read the 1619 Project essays and swelled with pride, affirming the project's aim of highlighting the contributions of black Americans to the United States as evidence that they should be regarded as model citizens to be respected and celebrated as the architects of this country. While I think it is important for us to recognize how deeply imprinted our influence is on everything American, I reject the idea that we should credit the United States for our contributions. This type of patriotism jeopardizes our own survival by insisting we fight for white acceptance instead of black liberation. What saddens me most is the willingness to detach ourselves from our African roots if it means becoming truly American. Since the initial collection of essays was produced, the 1619 Project has become a brand with the most recent release being a four-episode docuseries streaming through Hulu. 
Set against a post-COVID-19 backdrop where both intracommunal and police violence are still public health crises for Black communities, gentrification is destroying historic Black neighborhoods in every region of the country, the educational systems are miseducating our children at best and preparing them for prison and military-industrial complexes at worst, and despite social media's focus on Black entrepreneurship, the racial wealth gap is widening exponentially. Disregarding that the majority of wealth in the United States is debt-based, Black people have recently embraced the notion that wealth equals freedom and have revitalized the conversations about reparations from the United States government for the atrocities committed against us during our enslavement as a way to address these disparities. Reparations advocacy groups like ADOS, American Descendants of Slavery, and FBA, Foundational Black Americans, are attempting to validate reparations claims by identifying as Black Americans using the reparations model based on tribes indigenous to this country who are identified as Native Americans. Enter the 1619 Project, a visually beautiful piece of propaganda providing evidence for Black Americans to be viewed as a distinct and important racial group. The American Descendants of Slavery group makes fundamental distinctions among those who would qualify for reparations that exclude those with Caribbean and continental African ancestry who reside in the United States, and foundational Black Americans attempt to erase diaspora influences of what we consider Black American culture. I understand the strategy behind the terminology, but I believe it is divisive and destructive to try to make distinctions between African descendants whose ancestors were captives from the United States from those whose ancestors were captives in other places in the New World, especially in an attempt to secure financial compensation from a nation whose biggest export is Black culture because there is no Black American culture without the diaspora and the continent. Black American culture is African culture that has been adapted to ensure our survival in the United States. You can't have the Negro spirituals without African spirituality, African rhythms, and melodies. You can't have the Harlem Renaissance without Claude McKay and Marcus Garvey, both of Jamaican ancestry. You don't get Black power without Malcolm X, who has Grenadian heritage, and Kwame Ture, who has Trinidadian ancestry. You don't get hip-hop without the Caribbean because most of hip-hop's pioneers like Cool Herc and Grandmaster Flash have Caribbean roots. Again, Black American culture is African culture that we have transported through the Middle Passage to ensure our survival. Again, it bothers me that Black people in the United States would rather align themselves with one of the most violent, imperialist Western nations than strengthen the ties with the African diaspora just for a shot at a cash payout and to have a metaphorical seat at the table of brotherhood with their oppressors. But that is exactly the intent of the 1619 Project documentary series. By starting with 1619, it attaches our roots in British America's 13 colonies. However, if we expand beyond the East Coast, there's documentation that not only were Africans enslaved in what is now Mexico, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean, but many had already self-emancipated and had established maroon communities throughout the New World. In fact, before ancestors docked in Virginia, Gaspar Yanga, capital G-A-S-P-A-R, capital Y-A-N-G-A, 
escaped a Mexican plantation in 1570 and began establishing a community that by 1618 had a treaty that established them as sovereign near what is now known as Veracruz. On the Caribbean coast of Colombia, an hour outside of Cartagena, Palenque de Bancos, capital P-A-L-E-N-Q-U-E, D-E, capital B-E-N-K-O-S, became the first free Maroon community in 1607. One common aspect of all Maroon communities in the Americas is that African cultural elements were essential to their self-emancipation, spirituality, military strategy and tactics, agricultural abilities, navigation, and all other capabilities were carried with them from various nations on the west coast of Africa. To this point, I argue that Maroonage is proto-Pan-Africanism, and I insert this position as a refutation of anti-African Black American identities that pledge allegiance to the United States like the narratives of the 1619 Project. The attempt of the 1619 Project to disconnect everything beautiful about the Black experience in the United States from its African roots in an attempt to make a case for us being fully American is disrespectful to our ancestors. Again, I understand the desire to express pride in the contribution of our ancestors in establishing the most valuable things in this country, especially when we are taught to be ashamed of who we are. But attempting to appeal to your oppressors that you are good for them is futile because it's something they already know. In fact, your value is the basis of their wealth and position in the hierarchy. As I said before, black culture is the most profitable export in the United States, so whiteness will gladly welcome your efforts to credit them for everything you created. So while conservative whites publicly denounce the 1619 Project, it is widely embraced and supported by major media corporations to create products, including a book entitled A New Origin Story, conferences, merchandise, curriculum and teaching material, and a children's book entitled Born on the Water. The book titles center around the premise that black Americans are born on the water instead of being captives from Africa, and that our origin story begins when we arrive in chains in Virginia in 1619. Sure, the contributions of enslaved Africans and their descendants should be included in a true telling of American history, but that is for Europeans in the United States to wrestle with as they work to reclaim the humanity they lost when they created a society based on the construction of whiteness that attempted to dehumanize all indigenous people either aboriginal to or brought to this country. Propaganda like the 1619 Project may in fact be a legitimate starting point for whites, but 1619 should not be considered as a starting point for Africans and their descendants in the United States. To counter this anti-African, black American identity, we must unite as pan-Africans across the diaspora and on the continent. We must commit to uncovering the aspects of our Africanness that have been our immune system against 400 plus years of oppression in the United States. We must decenter the United States and Anglophone narratives of blackness in the Americas and resist the egocentric claim that we are the center of the African diaspora simply because we are located in the most powerful Western imperialist nation. We must also decenter narratives of our enslavement that center attempts at inclusion over those of resistance and liberation. We owe it to ourselves and our ancestors and future generations not to allow our history as Africans in the United States to be whitewashed by efforts like the 1619 Project that essentially allow 
witness ownership and thus profitability of African contributions to America. That was the op-ed piece, Star-Spangled Blackness, How the 1619 Project Celebrates an Anti-African Black American Identity, written by Dr. Charity Clay. It was published February 15, 2023 at the blackagendareport.com website. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Byron Buckner. Thank you for joining me. Thank you.